From the Maximum Fun Network, this is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. The stutter came when her father left. That's the way the story went. Elmer Froman was a traveling salesman, selling ball gowns and fine dresses to rich southern ladies. And one time he hopped the train to Memphis and never came home. His daughter, Jane, was five. And after that, she couldn't speak clearly anymore. That's how her mother explained it to her later on and how her mom would explain it to her teachers when Jane's words simply wouldn't come out when asked to recite a poem or say her ABCs or try to shout back at the kids who would make fun of her. It's how Jane Froman herself came to tell the story as an adult when people would ask because people wanted to know why this attractive, otherwise self-possessed young woman was such a reluctant conversationalist. Now, this story wasn't true. Stuttering doesn't start as a psychological problem. It's just how your body is made. But no one had figured that out yet, let alone Jane. In any way, there was a fleck of magic in that story. Because she may have struggled to speak, but... This is Jane singing in 1934, when she was 27. This happens a lot with stutterers. Turns out that we use our brains differently when we sing than when we speak, but people didn't know that then either. They just knew what they heard. And Jane's big, warm, kind of weird, puff pastry contralto is exactly what people wanted to hear back then. So Jane Froman became a star. Americans would set their schedules, would arrange their days and their dinner times to be in front of their radios, there in their living rooms in Tulsa or Tucson, and listen while she sang, right there at that very moment into a microphone in the studios of NBC at the brand new Rockefeller Center in Manhattan. She wouldn't speak. There was another woman who did that for her. Jane would finish her song, and some woman would say, I'm Jane Froman, when she was not. And the people listening at home would believe her. Because why wouldn't they? And they'd flip through the latest issue of Radio Stars or Song Hits or Radio Land Magazine and find a picture of Jane Froman. Dark hair. Bright eyes. Way prettier than anyone in radio has any need to be. And they'd piece it all together. The hair, the eyes, that singing voice, that speaking voice. And they would create their own Jane Froman. And they loved their Jane Froman and voted her America's favorite girl singer. And things were very good for Jane for a while. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. When FDR called on the nation's entertainers to do their part during World War II, Jane was the first one to volunteer. I don't mean that in a When a nation called, brave Jane was the first to answer way. I'm not just trying to smooth out the story. Like the way I just slipped in some hacky Pearl Harbor sound as a shorthand for months and years of policy debate and rumor and looming dread and uncertainty and upended lives. No, Jane Froman's response to the presidential request was literally the first to arrive at the White House. And soon she was singing at military bases all over the states and doing her part in the radio. She'd sing some patriotic, keep-the-home-fires-burning weeper, and then a pretend Jane would take the mic and encourage listeners to turn in their old pots and pans, 
so they could be turned into propellers and parts of incendiary devices. And in February 1943, Jane Froman, the real one, boarded a Pan Am seaplane at LaGuardia, bound for England via Portugal, for her first overseas performances for the USO. The flight over the Atlantic was long but smooth. She sang with passengers and signed autographs in the lounge, ate a six-course meal served by white-gloved waiters. And just after she and her fellow passengers watched the sunset over the seven hills of Lisbon, the plane came in for a routine landing on the Tejo River. But its wing dipped and clipped its surface. And all was fire and torn metal and then cold water. Jane didn't remember much after that. Just that she was suddenly in the river and there were bodies and parts of bodies and screams and smoke and she couldn't see a thing and she grabbed onto something and that something floated and so she didn't die. 24 others did. Jane remembered being dragged out of the water and having the distinct feeling that if she didn't keep holding onto her leg, it would come right off in her hands. And she remembered waking up in a hospital and then having to wait days until there was a doctor who spoke English and could tell her just how badly she was broken. About her shattered right arm, the compound fracture above her right ankle, broken ribs, lacerations, the leg that they were barely able to save. Her face was fine, which to Jane felt like a miracle, because she knew how important it was to those people at home who loved her from the radio, how they used it to piece her together. And that face was the only thing people saw of Jane for two months, while she lay in a Portuguese hospital in a head-to-toe cast. The president wrote to her this time, he appreciated that she had been the first person to answer his call. And he felt awful. He had managed to get his head around sending men off to war. It was part of the job. But the girl from the radio? He made sure, personally, in the middle of prosecuting World War II, that she got back to the States. And later, when she was home and it turned out that she needed more operations because her leg would just never heal, just kept getting infected, the president signed a letter that diverted scarce penicillin to the girl from the radio. Jane Froman had 37 operations in all, to set and reset the leg, to remove pieces of bone and Boeing 314. She hurt every day. And then she went back to work. She didn't want to, but the operations were expensive and had consumed her fortune. And so she'd rehearse in her various hospital rooms and then stagehands would carry her through the warren of backstage hallways and dressing rooms, and it would be painful and humiliating, and they'd prop her up on stage in a dress big enough to cover her scars and her brace, and she'd smile, and she'd sing, and pretend she didn't hurt so much. It wasn't like the people in the audience didn't know. They knew. America's favorite girl singer doesn't crash into a river on her way to perform for the troops without America knowing. Knowing it was part of the thrill of seeing her sing. Knowing how she triumphed. Knowing it how it had all worked out in the end. They didn't need to know exactly what was happening inside her. Because they had their own Jane Froman. The face. The singing voice. The speaking voice. And now the story. And a few years later they had the movie. 
It's Susan Hayward, Rory Calhoun, David Wayne, Thelma Ritter, and a screen full of glorious entertainers in the marvelous, the fabulous, the tremendous personal cavalcade of Jane Froman, Miss Show Business herself. The beauty who sang her way up the ladder of musical triumph, show by show, love by love, thrill by thrill, song by song. In the movie, Jane has no stutter. It would have gummed up the story. And the girl singer the audience knew from the radio didn't have one anyway. So there on screen was Susan Hayward, dancing and lip-syncing as the real Jane sang, doing things that the real Jane couldn't do. But she was used to that. It all ends with the big showstopper, as well it should. Jane has recovered, and she has kept a promise to herself and to her nation. And so there she is on stage, at a military hospital, somewhere in the European theater, singing to starry-eyed servicemen, wheelchair-bound, wiping tears, bandaged brothers-in-arms, tapping their toes to a sister of sorts, as she sings. It is a feel-good movie about someone who felt bad for the rest of her life. But this isn't surprising, because it's Hollywood. And because that is just the way things work with other people's bodies. When a running back jukes left, we don't know the numbness in his knee from the cortisone shot that masks the pain in his patellar tendon. We just see the four-yard gain. When the actor accepts her Emmy, we don't know the blister forming in her loner heels. We just see the grateful smile. We don't know our neighbor's lupus or seem to be able to remember our sister's or our parents' or our partner's pain in their back or their wrist, whatever, even though it's with them all the time and that it's all they'd really want to talk about if anyone really wanted to hear. We can't hold it in our heads because they are our heads. The best we can do is pause to imagine and try to remember. So let's imagine a movie theater in 1951, an audience watching an actress pretend to be the girl from the radio in a story that happened, in some version anyway, just six years before. Let's pause in the men there, men with their own wounds and their own nagging pains they took home from Europe or North Africa or the South Pacific as they watch yet another movie getting plenty wrong about their war and enjoying it anyway. And then let's see Jane watching yet another woman pretend to be her, watching mid-century special effects simulate the scariest moment in her life, the one that has defined everything since, and change this body she was born with, the one that meant she couldn't talk. But... have lost their meaning for me I'll never be the same nothing's what it once used to be and when the Oh.
Such an end.